one year ago today, it seemed possible that the biggest Canadian tragedy of 2020 had happened, and the year was only just beginning. The breaking news out of Iran, an air disaster that has killed 63 Canadians, one of the worst ever for the loss of Canadian lives. And we have many of the passengers on board were on the way to Ukraine, using Kiev as a transfer point to another final destination. This airline also flies Kiev to Toronto, which could explain the high number of Canadian casualties. In the immediate aftermath of Flight 752, there were no quick answers. There was a lot of speculation. Now, a year has passed, and we do have an official version of events of sorts, but we also still have questions, and we also have plenty of people who put no stock in the answers provided by the Iranian government. Those voices crying out for independent investigations in the weeks following the crash were soon drowned out by the rise of COVID-19. And in the months that followed, if you hadn't noticed, it has been hard to break through the news cycle over the past year. That doesn't change the fact that hundreds of Canadians are still mourning loved ones, are still wondering if they really know what happened, are still crying out for justice and hoping for closure. And today, We'll talk to one of them. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Hamed Esmailiun had family on Flight 752, and one year later, he is still searching for answers. Hello, Hamed. Hello, Jordan. Can you maybe start um, by taking us back a year and telling me about the moment when you realized exactly what had happened? Uh, it's very difficult for me to think about the moment I heard the news. Uh, in the in the all interviews that I had in the last twelve months, I didn't have the courage to go to that moment and go deep to that moment. That how was like you know how I was feeling or. But uh, the only thing I know is uh, because I had uh, printed the boarding passes and I knew the flight number. Uh, as soon as I saw the news on BBC, I knew what has happened. We begin with the breaking news of a, a Ukrainian passenger jet plane has crashed shortly after takeoff from Tehran, killing at least 170 passengers and crew. Rescue workers say there were no survivors. That was, uh, I think, January 8th, January 7th, January 8th was the most difficult night I've had in my life. And uh, I just realized that I have to go back and uh, go back to Iran, see what happened to my wife and my daughter, to hug my mother-in-law, to hug my mom, my brother, and share my grief with them. That was the only thing on my mind. Uh, I was shocked, and uh, I stayed in shock for days and for for weeks and for months. But the next day, instead of going to the airport in Toronto Pearson Airport to welcome them back in Canada, I had to go 
at the same time to the airport to fly to Iran to bring them back, their body back, instead of their, my wife and my daughter. Can you tell me a little bit about, about your wife and daughter? Who were they? My wife, uh, Marisa, she was a dentist. She was 42 years old. Uh, the best wife I've ever known. The best mom I've ever known. My daughter was nine years, seven months, and 16 days. And uh, the most precious things I've ever had in my life. Both of them. They were everything I had. And uh, so uh, Parisa, very dedicated person to her job. And a very hardworking person, very knowledgeable person. And Rira, uh, she could speak in three languages, right and read in wow. Farsi, in French, and in English. She was great for a student. And uh, she was a bookworm, like his father, her father. Mm. Yeah. In the, the first few days after the crash, when you, uh, you got on a flight and, and you went over there, what kinds of information and support uh, were you getting, I guess, both from, from our Canadian government, um, but also from, from Iran? Uh, the way Canadian government, our government here, and Iranian government tra- treated us was completely different, completely opposite. It took me 72 hours to get to Iran because uh, uh, I went to Frankfurt and then my flight to Fran- from Frankfurt to Tehran had to turn back to the airport because of the security reasons. You remember those days that they just realized that the airplane was shut down and it took them a few days to ac- admit that. So I was flying at those days and uh, you can imagine that uh, everything was unclear and I was crying in the plane. and. And exactly at the moment that I arrived in my mother-in-law's house uh, north of Iran, we saw the announcement of the government or the IRGC that they shut the plane down. Uh, you can imagine, this is a government that they're shooting to a civilian airplane. And on the other side, this situation was handed to Canada. Canada just woke up one morning and saw that the airplane was shut down with 85 Canadians and permanent residents on board, 138 passengers. Their final destination was Canada. And I couldn't wait to see Canadian delegation in Iraq. That's, that was the only thing I wanted to do. Because at that moment that I heard the announcement, I said, Parisa and Rira, they go back home. They go back to Toronto. And I knew that Iranian government won't let that, won't allow this. So I kept my decision like a secret in the family because uh, they had agents sending to everybody's house. And I was thinking if they know my plan or our plan, they're going to stop us from doing this. So then uh, I remember five in the morning or six in the morning on day six when... uh, uh, Minister Champagne posted a phone number on social media. I contacted them right away at 6.30 in the morning. I think I was one of the first people that I think contacted them. And I saw them the same day in the afternoon. 
uh, in a coffee shop in Tehran, and he said, I want to take my wife and my, my daughter back to Canada. Please help me. And uh, they did. At the same time, Iranian government are on the media working together to just uh, uh, cover up, to not say the truth. And then the Canadian government was helping us tirelessly to uh, bring back our loved ones home. And I remember when I landed in Montreal, there were like five officers from different departments welcoming us here. And uh, they were crying with us. I remember a, a, a foreign minister diplomat, probably, he was carrying my luggage and crying with me. Uh, but in Iran, the foreign minister of Iran asked me to go to uh, their headquarters to sign a form uh, that my wife and my daughter were Iranian, were not Canadian. Hmm. This is the way they treated us. Yes. When you say that at that time in the early days, um, the Iranian government wasn't telling the truth and, and there was a cover-up, what do you mean by that? Can you tell me the official story that you got from them, like in the immediate aftermath? The head of CAO, Civil Aviation Organization in Iran, like uh, some artists in the social media, some activists, not just in Iran, all over the world. There's like a reporter in London. There's a reporter or someone in Toronto. They're just saying, no, Iran won't shoot an airplane down. They're not that mean. And they were just working like apologists for, for the government of Iran. And the CAO, the head of CAO in Iran was like, no, technically this is not possible. Even some scientists or experts in Iran, they said, they published a statement and said, no, this is not possible. And my hope was that, okay, yeah, this is not possible. But they're mean enough to do that. And they have shown us, shown to the world in the last 42 years that they're capable of doing anything. They can sink so low to shoot an airplane with 29 children on board, nine entire families. 46 students and lots of professionals, lots of nice people on the plane, the members of the, the crew, Ukrainian. But they can do that. If they need to do such a thing, they can do it. As the year went on, um, we obviously uh, moved into a pandemic. And I think, I think a lot of people forgot this story a little bit. Um, has that been your experience as you you kind of have been searching for answers and, and trying to, to get an investigation going? Yeah, pandemic was very difficult. Uh, everything was against us probably. And uh, right after this, like two months later, the pandemic hit the world and hit Canada. And... Uh, we were thinking, okay, this is not the right moment to ask our government to do anything for us because uh, people are dying, and uh, we won't. Want, we don't want to put pressure on anybody when there are more essential things that should be done here in this country. 
But we still had meetings. We formed an association at the time of uh, February and March. We, the families, they got together. And we were working tirelessly. We have been working tirelessly since then. And uh, pandemic made it very difficult. We could plan for rallies. We could plan for gatherings. We could plan for even seeing a uh, therapist is not easy. But we didn't stop. We used the social media. We used the petitions. We used the website. We did everything that that a survivor can do. And hopefully by next year, or I mean 2021, the pandemic ended and soon, and uh, we have then we have more tools to use, like rallies and uh, gatherings and things like that. In your mind, what is the end goal? What do you want to see? I want to go to the heck. I want to go, I want to book a ticket one day and go to Netherlands and sit on one of those benches in the court and see those people responsible for this horrible crime present in the court. And I want to hear the explanation, what happened. I want to see justice one day. Justice, in my opinion, is like you hear that a flight from Tehran to Kiev landed in Kiev on January 8th, but this is not going to happen. But those people responsible for this crime, those people who committed such a crime, they have to pay for it. What would be the first step towards that, that a government or an organization could take in your mind? What will you be asking for first when you can get in front of someone again and and make some demands as an association? You know, the path is very, very difficult to follow. It's a very bumpy road because uh, at the beginning we we cried, actually. The the first, you know, the first thing that we need is like an impartial investigation. But IKO, the International Civil Aviation Organization, didn't listen to us. And uh, because this is not a crash, this is not a technical failure. Usually it takes a year or more than that for a government or for an organization to find the reasons for a, for a, for an airplane crash. But everything was clear from day three that they used military air defense system to down a plane. So they had time, they had enough time to come clean. They had enough time to negotiate. They had enough time to publish their final report. They had enough time uh, to explain to the world what happened. But now, after a year, we know that the investigation has been in the hand of of murderers. And uh, we asked several times for an impartial investigation as a first step to find the truth. The only thing has happened in Canada here on the month of October, we heard from the government that there is a forensic team working on the case. And uh, now, uh, I don't know, we have to wait for the final report of Iran, I assume. But there is a criminal case uh, as a parallel road, as a parallel path, that this can go to the International Court of Justice anytime. Anytime, because the technical part is clear, as I said. 
and uh, Iran has used the delay tactic to just postpone it, and now the technical uh, report is not ready as is recommended. But I don't know for some reasons that I don't understand. The United Nations they decided to stay quiet on this, and this is really annoying for us. Iran has breached almost every international regulation and laws. Why you didn't uh, address these issues? Why you didn't mention them? Or why you don't publish a statement to say to the world that they bulldozed the crash site, they kept the sky open, they shot at least two missiles, they looted the crash scene, they took the black boxes as a hostage for seven months. These are all breaches of the regulations, international regulations that have been working for 75 years. And uh, their hands are tied, probably, for some reason that you don't understand. And we should have taken this investigation out of uh, Iran's hands. But this hasn't happened yet. As you wait uh, for those things to happen, if they do, how have you been coping? How are you doing as we uh, as we mark one year? Uh, Jordan, I didn't have time for mourning. Yeah. I used to cry for six months. Then I stopped crying. And I said, you have to put your food on the ground. This is not time for crying. This is not time for shouting, for, uh, I don't know, just looking at the images and videos and everything. You have to do something. And this is not just me. There are all family members on this. When we say that we don't want compensations before finding the truth and find, you know, seeing justice, we are all united on this. When we say that we need impartial investigation, we are all united on this. There are lots of family members working tirelessly, I tell you that. Uh, on everything, on the, on the memorials, on the letters, on the petitions. It's, it was not possible without them. And uh, I didn't have time to think about my past. Everything happened, I, you know, in my, my life just is what happened in the past, before January 8th. What happened after this, uh, I don't count it as a, as a life is a parallel world. Hmm. It is a world that the ordinary people don't see it. We, we live in a bubble. It's like a bubble, bubble of seeking justice. And we just see people as shadows. And uh, it's very difficult to explain how a survivor or a victim of a crime feels, especially uh, when he suffers from PTSD and depression sometimes, but he wants to stand up and he wants to cry for justice. What can ordinary people who are listening to this podcast and who, like I said, you know, um, might have lost track of this story with everything that's gone on in the past year, what, what can they do? What kind of help do you need from, from Canadians? I think writing letters to MPs and, uh, you know, there's a saying that says if you're not as outrageous as the victims of a crime, the justice will be served. And uh, 
I think it's important to keep the story alive. It's important to spread the story to other parts of the world, like Canada is on top of things here, but uh, like in European Union, I don't see any reaction in European Union. I don't see much in the United States. And uh, I think most of the job should be done by, by the families. We are the ones that we have to keep this story alive. And we do our best. I think anything that a survivor can do, we have done in the last one year. We have sent letters. We have had petitions, website, rally, uh, whatever, you know, anything that you can imagine. And uh, we rely on public support. And we rely on... Uh, People are still thinking about 176 with an unborn child. We usually say 177 passengers. We're flying home to be at work next day, to go to school next day. And their lives cut short for some reason that we don't know why and how and who ordered that who pushed the button. We don't know anything about this. And when you uh, know, we don't, when you don't know anything about the incident, it's like walking in darkness. Just, uh, it's a very dark tunnel that you're walking through and you're just searching for, for a light at the end of tunnel. I really hope that you get some light this year and that you get some answers um, and that more people remember this story and remember that we're still waiting to find out what happened. Thank you so much, Ahmad, for talking to us today. Thanks for having me, Jordan. Thank you very much. That was Hamed Esmalyun. That was The Big Story. If you'd like more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. Email us at the Big Story Podcast. That's all one word and all lowercase at rci.rogers.com. And as always, whichever podcast player you prefer, you will find us there. Leave us a rating, leave us a review. The Big Story is produced by Claire Broussard, Stephanie Phillips, and Ryan Clark. Annalisa Nielsen is our digital editor. I am Jordan Heath Rawlings. Stay safe. We'll talk Monday.